it is not uncommon for a preacher or a teacher who follows or is teaching a lectionary to come across Psalm 137 and just kind of put the brakes on. And as they're teaching this, either they decide that they want to cut out a, a verse or two of this or just skip it all together. And think of it this way. Usually our call to worship that we have printed in our bulletin, usually it's a, it's a song. Maybe it's a direct quote. Or maybe it's just a summary or uh, just sort of what the psalm is getting about. So think of Psalm 137 as a call to worship. It just doesn't really have that, hi guys, welcome to Sunday morning worship, God loves you kind of feel to it, does it? Not at all. Not at all. A few weeks ago, we completed a sermon series that we had looked at Jeremiah for. You remember that? We said that we were chosen, chosen for different things. And one of the things we talked about in that series is Jeremiah's lament over his people's situation. You remember that they had everything taken from them. You remember that someone came in and took them away to a different land, held them captive, took everything from them, and on and on and on. You remember that? It's, it's pretty much agreed to that that experience is the basis for Psalm 137. So if you hear those words and think about them again or maybe reread them, if you're able to try to wrap your mind around the emptiness or the hopelessness, the hatred, all kinds of emotions that this writer has as she or he is writing it. This is probably the musician, a musician of the group, right? It's always the musicians. It's always the choir, right? <laughs> always the horn section, okay. But just think about the emotions that are behind this person's comments to be able to, to think, to conceive that the only way that would make this situation better is the murder of innocent children. And you've probably heard before that the Bible is full of every emotion. Every emotion is in the Bible. And certainly when we come across a psalm like this one, we can kind of say, if they're not all there, boy, pretty much all of them are there. And that doesn't make this right, it doesn't justify it. It means that it's there and we need to figure out what to do with it, don't we? Now, the reason why I think this language or this image hurts us is because we have something inside of us that won't stand for that, right? particularly this, this notion. And understand, the psalmist, the writer's not saying, we need to get up and do this, right? The psalmist is reflecting on their experience being paraded in front of the enemy, made to sing these songs, and the only thing that makes sense is comes to their mind, this concept we know somebody would be happy if they would just take your children and get your wife. I'm not saying go out and do this, and again, that's not to justify it, but there's something in us that will not stand for that because our children are important to us, aren't they? There's something about the innocent child, about the child period, that we just will not stand for anything. We can't stand the thought of anyone bringing harm to our children, to the children of the world. Am I right? There's this, there's this idea that children being threatened, we, we just will not tolerate. 
I'm going to give that to you because and remind you that no sermon, no one sermon, can cover everything that is in a biblical text. And certainly not this sermon. It can't, and it's not going to cover everything for Psalm 137. In fact, we're actually going to leave Psalm 137, but I wanted to use it as a backdrop for something else we're talking about today. Because hopefully, get some of that fire going in you as you think about the the, the idea that this psalmist gave to us. Maybe you didn't hear it well enough. Let me remind you what it said again real quick. You don't mind. Psalm 137, verse 9. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rocks. Y'all with me? Okay. I'm going to suggest today that our young people today face a threat that it's not the same, but it's no less serious than something like this. Now, before I get started any further, let me say this. Let me agree with most of you on something. Yes, a lot of the struggles or circumstances that young people deal with today mirror or are strikingly similar to a lot of the things or struggles that many of us had when we were the same age, Okay? But, when your kindergartner comes home the first couple of weeks of school, your five-year-old kindergartner says, Hey, Dad, look at my parallelogram. We realize not everything is the same. Some things have changed. Now, I want you to be honest. What comes to your mind when you hear the word, Okay. Anybody want to be brave and say it? Lord help us. Okay. You know what's interesting about that term teenager? It wasn't first used, it wasn't widely accepted until the year 1940. Here's what's even more interesting. All right, here, I'll take a crack at it. Who came up with this term, or this concept that we have now as teenagers? It was merchandisers and advertisers. Now, I'm not saying anything against merchandisers or advertisers, but what are what is their job? To sell something. Right? To sell. They were selling, and we bought it. And we kept buying it. And we are still buying it today. We are keeping it in great stock. And we get all riled up about those teenage years. Because here's the reality, brothers and sisters. Adolescence has always been there. There have been people ages 13 through 19 for all of the world's history. And you can't tell me in 1940 something automatically changed. Maybe we did something. Maybe we created something. Because here's another part of the reality. Young people have been doing great things in this world for the history of the world. Young people have ruled over kingdoms. Young people have started revolutions, have brought social change. Young people have done great things. A lot of people 
have come to realize that Jesus' own disciples, when he first said, come follow me, that most of them were probably 9, 10, 11, or 12 years old. So that when he said, go and make disciples of all nations, they were probably only about 12 or 13 years of age. And what did they do to the world? They changed the world. But what we've done is we have created a gulf between us and our young people. So that, that kind of idea, we just, yeah, but things have changed. Well, no, they haven't. Maybe the way we think of things has changed. Are you all with me? Young people have been doing great things in this world forever. Now, don't get me wrong. When I'm telling you all this, I want you to understand that I believe and I think there is an accountability that young people have to adults. I think there's a responsibility that adults have to young people. We should provide for them. We should teach them. We should protect them. If anybody comes with a Psalm 137 stone against our children, we should stand up for them. Amen? You're supposed to say that by yourself, okay? So don't get me wrong. There is that dynamic. But I have come to learn that there is a joy just the same. And we realize that we journey with our young people. Now, I know how road trips can be with young people. Depending on how old they are, either the music's way too loud or the silence is deafening. Or you always have the question of, are we there yet? What about now? What about 30 seconds later? Are we there yet? I got to go. He hit me, she bit me. Are we there yet now? Where are we? Am I making this up? But none of us plan these family trips without the children. Because then it wouldn't be a family trip, would it? But I'm going to suggest to you today that the church has not only planned the family trip, but that they have gone on the family trip and left the children behind with somebody else. And this is the threat that we have to work against. You see, there is a whole lot of God's work to be done in the world. And I don't know how you get your news sources online, on TV, in the newspaper, whatever, but you quickly realize as you glance through, we adults, we don't have it all figured out ourselves. We don't do such a good job with some of the work that we have to do. And I think we do well to understand that what we got to do is put the kids back in the car and let them help us in this work that God has given all of us to do. We need to learn to encourage our young people the same way the Apostle Paul encourage a younger Timothy. Think about the words that you heard Paul say right in this letter to Timothy. He says, I am grateful to God for you. And I remember your tears and I long to see you again. It's pretty easy to say that there is some sincere gratefulness, love, and even respect for the younger Timothy. We need to learn to 
that. We need to encourage our young people. Jeff? Yes, sir. Because you see what Paul did. He said all that and he says, I want you to minister with me. Don't lose sight. Don't worry about how young you are. Don't be coward. Remember that God has given us a spirit to do these things together. And we need to learn how to let young people work with us. Now here's the reality. I am probably not saying anything that people in churches haven't said before almost. I think we've gotten it half right. Here's the reality. Many, 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 many churches have gone through the same exact thing as this church here has. Many churches have seen their community change. Many churches have had members leave, members pass away. Many churches have gone through the very same scenarios as Oak Haven has. The only thing that has changed are the people. And I am willing to bet that every single one of those churches, if they didn't say it word for word, they said it thought for thought, but it went something like this. We just need to get the young people in here because that'll change everything. You ever heard that? We just need to get them, right? Get them. Go get them. Now, there's some truth to that. There's some, there's some validity in that, but I think it's only half of the understanding we need to have. See, a lot of churches are just happy to have young people show up. Oh! <laughs> You're here! I don't care about anything you do for the rest of the week. You're here, and I'm just happy you're here. Part of that is because we have relied on, we have fallen on, and we have misunderstood that great old proverb that says, train a child in the way that he should go, and people got it memorized, don't they? So many people know that. Realize one thing, though, that that proverb does not it does not say, drag your child kicking and screaming to every church event, and when they are old, we're getting there. That's not what it says, does it? What does it say? Train a child in the way he or she should go. You remember a few weeks ago when we first looked at First Timothy, we talked about divine training. You remember that? We said that part of what we do when we come here is our divine training. I am saying that most churches, we don't divinely train our children. In fact, we sell them short. We sell our children short when, when, when they walk down the aisle to go back to Sunday school, if, or back to children's church, if we think of that as a way to keep the sanctuary quiet while we get down to real business, we aren't divinely training them. We're selling them short. If our Sunday schools, if we don't give them the resources they need to make sure that they are not only giving this stuff but impressing this stuff to our children, we aren't divinely training them. We are selling them short. 
If we just want to give them something to do while we come downstairs and drink coffee and donuts, we are selling them short. If our VBS is just something for kids to do in the summertime because they're bored, and we don't think of it as divine training, we are selling them short. If our youth groups aren't about divinely training our young people, we are selling them short. A lot of us understand the way, train a child in the way of Christians, as a body of Christ. We understand the way to be the way of Jesus. We get that part. We, we consider ourselves committed to that part. But it's the training part, the first part of the proverb. Train a child. We, we, we don't quite get that. I don't think. Now, I've worked with you for over a decade now. And so I tell you that, remind you that, not so you can say, wow, you've worked with you for over a decade now, but so you can understand that I've taken all that time to reflect on what I've seen and what I've been a part of. And in my experience, most families and most churches aren't divinely training they're just hoping something sticks. And I want you to understand that there is a big difference. Now in that decade plus, 12 of those years, I have had children. And every church I have been in, every church that we have served, either a clergy or otherwise, a pastor, a leader, somebody has said, John, just you wait. You don't know what's coming. And my initial thought is, you know what? I don't know what's coming. So just you wait. Because like a trainer in the corner of a prize fighter, like a coach who has trained her or his players for certain situations and certain parts of the game, like a teacher who has trained her or his students, you better believe I have been committed to divinely training, whether I called it that or not. Not only my children, but the children that have been entrusted to us through youth ministry. Now, I tell you that not so you kind of sounds like this, and please get rid of that. That's not what it's about. What it is about is there's no reason why all of us can't have the same attitude as well. There is a big difference from training our, child, our children up in the way they should go and just hoping something sticks. There's a big difference. Because training has some sort of anticipated outcome, doesn't it? Training takes commitment. Training takes work. Training takes encouragement. Training also takes planning. See, we, we were real good at telling our kids what not to do and what they better not do. And there's some value to that, right? You, you ever had the finger pointed at you that way as a kid? Some of y'all have both of them. I know y'all, huh? We've been real good at telling our kids what not to do, but I think it's time for to get them back in the car and let's train them more and tell them what they can do and what they are capable of doing. We've done a very good job of giving things to our children that make their life easier. But hear me out, I think we've done a poor job of giving them things that help make their life more meaningful. 
And I want you to know I consider myself to be in that group just as much as any. Jesus gives us these comments about the mustard seed, right? A thing that many of us hold on to. It's powerful. It means a lot to us. I have faith like this. I can do anything. I can move mountains, right? If you go back to the beginning of, of Luke 17, where this whole conversation starts out, do you remember how it starts out? Before Jesus says about the mustard seed, do you remember what he said first? Something along the lines of, woe to any of you who caused somebody else to stumble. Young people, maybe? It'd be better for you if you had a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea. Remember that? Jesus says that. Remember what the apostles said? Lord, increase my faith then. <laughs> I don't want to do that. And Jesus says, you don't need to increase your faith because it only takes a mustard seed of faith to be great and big things. And my thought is for us today is that if we learn, if the body of Christ learns to give our children those powerful seeds, great things happen. So I hope you understand what I'm trying to say, that there is joy when we learn to journey with our young people. And that family trip is worth all of our we there yet. It's worth all of the stops along the way. See, a growing church, I think, needs all those seniors who get all those cool discounts. And everybody else who, those of us who aren't there yet, we, we need all those people to do specific things. And in particular, one of the things that those seniors need to make sure that they do is journey with, intentionally journey with, those seniors who don't get discounts, from juniors, sophomores, freshmen, middle schoolers, elementary age, preschoolers, and all those cute little babies we baptize and we promise to be here for. So the bigger question that we have over us today as we've been answering trying to answer is, is that church growing? Well, one of the things we need to find out for sure, in, in, the, in the words of Paul, we need to ask ourselves, well, are they remembering those children constantly in their prayers? And do they think that they are journeying with their young people? Loving God, remind us this moment the great joy, the overwhelming joy we have when new life is brought into this world. Continue, God, to work in us that joy as we watch children grow up. As we watch certain milestones in their lives. As we watch the, the personalities develop in them. Stir in us that same joy. As we watch them grow up to be the older people of this world we want them to be. Remind us always of the new life for all of us. Teach us to have great care, concern, and
put ourselves to training our children to your will so that they would come to know you, to know your love, and be committed to your will. And together as all of your children, we pray these things to us.